Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 546 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Boy, what a day. It is getting, what was the old saying from the Fire Sign Theater? It's hotter than Heater and Hooker and hotter than Hooker and Hellville. It is hot out there all over the planet. So I wanted to check in with Professor Michael Mann on this. He's the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology and the Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, author of multiple books. 
the author of The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. His website, michaelmannwith2ends.net. And you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann with two N's. And Michael, you invented the hockey stick? You could say that, yeah. Okay. 20 years ago now. Cool. Yeah. And Al Gore took that thing and popularized it. And boy, your work, you have changed the world, sir. Your work is just extraordinary. We're I'm right back at you, Tom. Yeah. Thank you. I'm looking at an article in Nature. I'm wondering if you saw this. Globally rising soil heterotropic respiration over recent decades. And what their point, they started out by saying that global soils store at least twice as much carbon as the Earth's atmosphere. And then they talk about how it's traditionally been a global sink of carbon. And now they say it looks like it's starting to gas out carbon, that this could be a tipping point of some considerable danger. They say all trends are robust to sampling variability in ecosystem type, disturbance methodology, fertilization effects, and mean climate. Taken together, our findings provide observational evidence that global RH is rising, probably in response to environmental changes consistent with meta-analysis, long-term experiments. And they say that some of this is being driven by increased bacterial activity in soil. You know, we've been talking about this for a long time, you and me, Michael. And back, you know, five, six, eight years ago, I would say wild stuff like, oh my God, you know, what happens if the methane starts melting in the Arctic or, you know, the soil starts outgassing methane? And, you know, you were a little more laid back. It seems that science is starting to get scary. Am I uh, exaggerating here? No, not at all. And our critics accuse us sometimes, uh, the scientists, of being alarmists because of what we have to say, because of the problem that we're describing. You could say that what we have to say is alarming. The irony here is, if anything, we have been overly reticent. That includes myself at times. We tend to be conservative in terms of our pronouncements because we want to be convinced by the evidence before we state something to be true. Now, on methane feedbacks, there still is a legitimate debate within the climate research community as to how substantial those might be. But this latest article that you describe is a good example of one of these unknowns, known unknowns, if you will, and an example of how uncertainty has not been our friend, because we are, in fact, learning that there may be some additional positive feedback processes. And that sounds like a good thing, but it's not. The positive feedback is a vicious cycle. It means the problem worsens itself. And in this case, by warming the planet and warming the soils, we're increasing the bacterial activity in a way that actually causes the soils from being, as you alluded to, a net sink that's pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and helping keep CO2 levels lower than they would otherwise be, that appears to be turning into a source. It's actually adding to the CO2 buildup from the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, there are other examples of these so-called carbon cycle feedbacks that uh, typically have not been incorporated into climate models. Only in more recent years have climate modelers started to incorporate these processes. And this is an example of why it's been so difficult. We're still doing the basic research necessary to understand these mechanisms so that we can put them in a mechanistic model. Yeah. And here is an example of a study that may cause modelers to reconsider whether we are properly accounting for microbial activity in these models we use and the effect of increasing greenhouse gas concentrations on our climate. Yeah. So this is an example of a, an unwelcome surprise, another example of how things in some sense might be worse than we had thought, not better. Yeah. The two things I wanted to get your take on right off the top here are 
For some time, I've been running around yelling about the Permian mass extinction, a mass die-off. You know, I'm getting a little less hysterical about that and a lot more concerned about civilizational impacts over the short term. What happens when we have millions, billions of climate refugees? August 1st was Earth Overshoot Day. It was the day that we surpassed the ability of the planet to sustain itself, essentially, you know, with the net primary productivity. What are your thoughts on the possibility of climate change being a civilizationally disruptive event? That's my first question. Yeah. The second one, is it the case that these weather events are obviously the heat is hotter and the storms are stronger and all that kind of stuff, but that the main reason that they're perceived as being even more severe than the increased temperature might suggest, and they're causing things like all these wildfires, is because the jet stream has disintegrated in ways that are causing these weather patterns to move much more slowly than they traditionally used to be. So instead of just one day of 103, we're getting six days in a row of 103. Back to you, sir. Yeah, I'll try to tackle both of those questions at once because they are interrelated. The fact is that you don't have to use your imagination anymore to understand how climate change represents a threat to civilization. All you have to do is turn on your television or read your newspaper headlines. We are seeing all sorts of extremely unprecedented and damaging weather events across the entire northern hemisphere right now, from the wildfires in California to the unprecedented heat in the Arctic and the wildfires up there to the flooding in Japan, and the list goes on. And these are all interconnected in a way that you've alluded to. Some of this just has to do with basic physics. You warm up the planet, you're going to have a more intense and more frequent heat extremes. That's obvious. You warm up the planet, you're going to have a warmer atmosphere that can hold more moisture. So you're going to get bigger rainfall events. You're going to get bigger flooding events. Uh, you dry out the soils through evaporation, you're going to get worse droughts as well at the same time. Uh, and the list goes on. But there's something else going on here as well. And you've alluded to this. Part of what makes these weather events so extreme isn't just the nature of the weather itself, but its persistence. And we are seeing the jet stream, in a sense, slowing down. And we're also seeing very large meanders in the jet stream, where it swings way north. And that gives us what's known as a ridge. And that's where you get a lot of sunlight. You get baking of the soils. You get drought. You get wildfires. And that's what we've got over western North America right now, California. But then that jet stream meander dips south again on the other side of the country. And that's what we call a trough. It's a low-pressure center. And you get rainfall with that. Well, we've had rain here for, I think, now seven consecutive days here in central Pennsylvania. And it's part of this large-scale system right now, this large-scale sort of meander in the jet stream that isn't moving along. And it's a really big meander. You know, So the bigger those ridges, the bigger those troughs, the more wiggly the jet stream, the more extreme weather. The slower the jet stream, the more likely it is that those weather systems remain stalled. They stay in place. And day after day, you get rainfall in the same location or the heating of the sun uh, day after day in the same location. Our own research has shown that climate change, and in part through the accelerated warming of the Arctic, is actually changing the jet stream in a way that makes these properties more frequent, that makes it more likely that you're going to see these very large meanders and they're going to stay locked in place for day after day. And when those two things come together, that's when you get unprecedented weather extremes. And, and we're seeing that play out. And we know, as a matter of fact, that the mechanism that we've described in our scientific articles is actually playing out right now in the pattern we've seen this July. 
Wow. Uh, the state of pushback, how are we doing, you know, fighting climate change? Obviously, you know, Trump pulled us out of the Paris Accords, but a, a lot of companies, a lot of people are still committed to doing something about climate change worldwide. But the Paris Accords weren't binding in any case. Where are we at and what can we do? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, where we're at is that the United States right now is the only country in the world that is not committed to the Paris Accord. We are the skunk at the Garden Party right now under Trump. The uh, Trump administration's policy, as you alluded to, is to threaten to pull out of Paris, whether or not he can really even do that, but to undo a, a lot of the progress that's been made over decades in acting on a host of environmental problems, including climate change, including all the progress that was made under the previous administration, um, the Trump administration. His EPA is trying to get rid of the Clean Power Plan, back out of our international commitments, and undo all sorts of regulations that are designed to keep us from accelerating the burning of fossil fuels, blocking incentives for renewable energy, making it more difficult, for example, to sell solar panels to the United States, putting a tariff on solar panels and Chinese solar panels. So across the board, Trump and those he represents, polluting interests that he represents, have done everything they can to stymie progress here in the United States. The good news is that the rest of the world is moving along, is moving forward. The West Coast states, California, is moving forward under uh, the leadership of Jerry Brown. The New England states, a lot of our largest cities, a lot of our largest companies, actually, remain committed to commitments under the Paris Accord. So what that says is we're still making progress. Here's the problem. Paris alone isn't enough to stave off truly catastrophic climate change. We're going to need to improve on the commitments that were made in Paris if we're going to prevent that. This administration seems hell-bent on preventing that. Uh, we need to send a signal to the administration and to Congress that we want to join the rest of the world. And how are we going to do that? In less than 100 days now, we've got a midterm election where we can signal we want to join the global community. We don't want the U.S. to be an obstacle. And we have to vote on this issue, on climate. Amen. Yes. <laughs> is the Tom Hartman Program. Dr. Michael Mann, his website, michaelmann.com, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Talk media for the rest of us. It's the Tom Hartman Program. The uh, director of the FBI and several of the uh, other national security officials are holding a press conference in which they're talking about how they're going to be pushing back against foreign interference in our elections and saying this is all real and you know, basically don't pay any attention to what Trump says. You know, they didn't actually say that, but I am. There's also in the news, this is in the Dallas Morning News today, a toddler died recently after being released from the nation's largest immigration detention center, an official with the American Immigration Lawyers Association said on Wednesday, this was yesterday afternoon, this, uh, I got news of this after I got off the air, I retweeted the story, uh, and uh, somehow I had it in my head that I would talked about it on the air yesterday. Apparently I didn't, and so I'm bringing it up again. Uh, this is the uh, family detention center with 2,400 beds, and apparently the, the charge that the AILA, the immigration, the American Immigration Lawyers Association is, is making or is suggesting or implying is that this little baby got uh, pneumonia or something like pneumonia. It was a respiratory infection that caused her to die while in this facility and then was discharged and died a day or two later uh, of the disease that she acquired there. And uh, they're, they're looking for other lawyers. They're trying to confirm this with the family. Uh, this is a moving story right now. 
uh, moving both in terms of heartbreaking and moving in terms of uh, we don't have all the details and, and like that. There's also a hunger strike by fathers separated from their families uh, being planned for a, a, another facility in Carnes, Texas, uh, according to uh, people from the legal group Refugee and Immig Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services, RACES, uh, reported over BuzzFeed News. So this is, this is serious stuff. Trump, in fact, what I tweeted last night was, is, is it fair now to say that the entire Trump administration, or at least that, you know, John Kelly, we're going to do this to discourage them. Kirsten Nielsen, the director of Homeland Security, the ultimate boss of ICE, and Donald Trump himself, is it time to say that these people now, at least metaphorically, have blood on their hands? It sure seems like it to me. Charlotte in Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, Charlotte, what's on your mind? Wonderful day, Tom, and thanks be to God for you. We are uh, living in some dangerous times, as you were speaking, with regard to uh, the fight for the Fourth Freedom Book. I mm. like that book myself. As Kennedy brought forward in his nomination speech to the nation back in 61, that we have to build a new age of, of, of future and history for our people. And we are now at that juncture here uh, in this country where we have had a reverse migration demographic shift in the country that had the demonization have come back to people in certain groups and categories being uh, a part of the polarization, a lack of compromise. And this is because of these oligarchs and very specifically this Koch brother here in Florida, when Jeb Bush came into Florida 20 plus years ago, as a person who had no political experience, only name recognition from having been a Bush, was supported by this Alex Koch-funded think tank white paper group. Many of them, American Enterprise. Uh, mm -hmm. You could just start Cato Institute, the libertarian one. Uh, yeah. you, you could just start naming all of these different. And the Koch brothers funding, now they're in academe. I'm in academe. And they now have come to the black campuses, HBCUs, over 100 in the nation still. And they've come in because of state disinvestment in HBCUs. And they've come in and purchased these uh, entrepreneurial, market-free set-up centers where they have instituted the professors to be then selected by them. Then they get to choose 25% of the boards. And this is the kind – now because we have exposed their Alex legislative uh, uh, prowl, they now are trying to change their image and say that they want prison reform. Right. That, They've been saying criminal justice reform. Yeah, Somet yeah, sometimes yeah, they talk about drug law reform. Yeah, criminal justice, that's the word, yes. Yeah. They, and not, and by the way, there's a, there's a magic piece to that, Charlotte. In their criminal justice reform, they are suggesting that we should change the laws so that if a CEO, if a senior executive in a company makes a decision that leads to somebody dying, that yes. you have to prove that it was their intention that that person died and okay. what they're saying is that we they want to update the laws you know sure they're willing to cut some of the drug crimes and some yes, of the sentences yes. and things but they want to update the laws so that wealthy white executives can no longer be prosecuted for the crimes their companies commit of their of, of right of their grift yeah. yes uh, and and the, but there is a there is a light at the end of the tunnel because I I, I believe in the faith and hope uh, and brothers keeper model mm -hmm. and so I believe that we have some issues that will in fact unite us the criminal justice reform not notwithstanding there because uh, this is just false propaganda they they realize that the the, the country and you and others very specifically 
have exposed their agenda with their corporate agenda that they have only wanted to create their control over the labor and uh, social network, a privatization of the country. That's all they want. They know we now see them. So this is this propaganda to change their image to say that they now want nonprofits to be a part of the scope of their work. They now want academe. And they've come in, like I said, and they bought up these schools because we have not been getting investment. But to go back to the hope, the hope where I believe we can unite the people to a new collective common good that you talk about. And I believe, I just think it's wonderful, uh, that commons. I use that so much in the lecture now. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, because it has a way of, of, of really uniting the message. Charlotte, thank you for the call. A great contribution to the show. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. And the line with us is the author of Sideswiped, the book on greasy machinations of Washington, D.C., how it all works, is Bob Nay. Congressman, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Tom. So what's going on in the world today? Well, I'm sure you've covered tweet madness, so I won't go there. No, I haven't, uh, actually. I tend I, not to oh. cover Trump's tweets. Oh, okay. So well, feel free. I, I, okay, I can, I can do a little bit of that, because uh, there are some other real big issues. But, of course, he tweeted about the attorney general and the response back about his tweet where he says the attorney general should shut down the Mueller investigation. The defense, of course, back from the White House is uh, twofold. One, that he has an opinion is what he has. And second, the attorney general cannot shut it down. But the attorney general is the boss of the person who can shut it down, which is, you know, yeah. Rosenstein. So obviously, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was trying to, quote, clarify because a bone of contention is the president and his ability or not of obstructing justice through right. these tweets. Her argument right. that he said should instead of must really right. falls apart when you consider the power differential between the president of the United States and the attorney general. The president holds the attorney general's job in his hands. He holds his income in his hands. He holds his reputation in his hands. He has the ability to do great damage to the attorney general personally. And so when somebody with that kind of power over you says you should do something, you typically do it. And so I think his argument, or Sarah Huckabee Sanders' argument, that this is not obstruction of justice is pitiful. Back to you, Bob. Right. And, and it's, well, it's amazing, Tom, that the attorneys are letting him comment on this at all. But yeah. I, I don't I, think they can control I don't think that. they can stop him. I think it's, right. you know, this is, you're seeing Trump's id. Right. And there's a couple of other issues. One's kind of high profile, and the other is not getting the attention, I don't think yet, that it deserves. The high profile one are the plans announced by the administration to freeze the fuel efficiency requirements for our nation's cars and trucks through 2026. Right. So this is a massive regulatory rollback. It's going to have a big legal battle, especially with California. And it would also revoke California's longstanding waiver, which they have on its own tailpipe restrictions. That was granted back in 1970 right. through the Clean Air Act. Yeah, and what that did was California had stricter emission standards, and so those functionally became the emission standards for the country since there's, what, over 30 million people living in California. There's a hell of a lot of cars there. So the car, car manufacturers just adopted California's standards. And, and this all has to do with promoting fossil fuels. I mean, right. this is the Coke Industries ExxonMobil agenda. Right. Amazing. Yeah, that's correct. And then the other issue, which, again, I don't see at least it's getting the attention that it really should be, is the expansion of the what we so-called short-term insurance plans. Mm -hmm. And that's the you know, significant steps that the president is taking. 
And that, of course, would completely march backwards from the Affordable Care Act. When President Obama was there, he had a three-month ability for some of the short-term insurance plans, which would be kind of a you know stopgap till you get into a, a program, right? But under the Trump administration, Tom, the Department of Health and Human Services are finalizing their regs. That will let people hang on to short-term plans for up to three years. So yeah, I, I went off on this at some length yesterday. It's this is oh, okay. this is bizarre, and it's going to destroy Obamacare because oh, yeah. you know young, healthy people are going to be buying these plans and not buying Obamacare, which means that Obamacare is going to be, most of their customers are going to be older, sicker people, which is going to wipe them out. Right. United Health is going to the be the big up. winners, and the losers are going to be people that have pre-existing conditions, obviously, yep. are going to be losing in it. One point, too, he may be doing this now, but another point, Tom, is that he may very well be helping to do the final stages for the destruction of the ACA, which may actually lead eventually to single payer, or as people say, they're wrapping it into Medicare. You know, right. the pay-as-you-go Medicare plan. Right. So he may actually, in the long run, be doing something. It's going to be painful, but it might lead to. Actual, I, I think uh, by destroying Obamacare, by destroying the existing for-profit system and jacking up the prices on everything, Trump is actually opening the door to Medicare for all, and it's getting more and more popular. Right. I mean, Fox News just did a poll. Fox and Friends just did a poll, and overwhelmingly, people said they wanted Medicare for all. Right. And so I think indirectly he may be doing that. Not that he intends to do that, actually, yeah. but it may be indirect. And then the other story that we are carrying today, you know, with Talk Media News, is the story about the sanctions in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Pastor Brunson. But what's particularly kind of strange on this story is, at least in our analysis, is trying to find out why the president took such drastic steps. Now, it's not that Brunson is not the victim of a kangaroo court or the victim of some bad policies within the prime minister of Turkey. But the fact remains that the sanctions and the shutdown over one individual is quite interesting. I think you're seeing the lobbying of Trump by the religious right. That's what I was... They've they've turned this guy into a martyr. Because Trump has a hotel in Turkey, and Trump loves Erdogan. You know, he's he's the kind of despot that Trump himself wants to be. So it's got, there's got to be an external force that's substantial. And I think it's Trump's, Trump wants the Christian vote to turn out for him and for Republicans in the election. And this is the price he has to pay for it. Bob Day. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer, and the waves get softer, and you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool, and meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now, and I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day, I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, 
Now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Mike in Los Angeles. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Hey, you had a caller yesterday who was very concerned about non-citizens voting in San Francisco. Right. Uh, actually, something like that is happening, but it's not at all what the right-wing websites are claiming it is. Basically, you had a situation where legal resident aliens were paying taxes and had kids in the school and weren't getting to vote in the school board elections. Right. So they passed a measure in 2016, which gives them the right to vote in the school board elections only, because, of course, they're citizens of San Francisco, even if they're not citizens of the U.S. However, they have to fill in all the uh, required voter information anyone would for any uh, category of citizenship, mm -hmm. and they have to uh, be subjected to that information going to immigration because it's public records. So if there's anybody in the country illegally who tried to sign up to vote in a school board election, they'd be subject to immediate deportation. Mm. Yeah, I figured it was something like that, Mike. I know that there are uh, actually several cities around the United States that have said that uh, people who are not full U.S. citizens but are living here legally and paying taxes and all that kind of stuff, permanent residents, people who've been here in some cases for decades on green cards, uh, that they should have a say in local communities. And so on a limited basis, they can vote, but they can't vote in national elections. And, uh, and, and I think in most cases, they can't vote in statewide elections. It's just, it's just on these local issues. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for the, cl the clarification, Mike. I appreciate it. I appreciate the call because sure. I just said no way. And I, apparently I was wrong. Thanks, Mike. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, The Economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. His Twitter handle is Prof Wolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. His websites are democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com. Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. The New York Times has a fascinating story about how Portugal said to the European Union, you guys all want austerity. You want to cut Social Security. You want to cut pensions. You want to reduce wages. You want to dial back on health care. You want to dial back on housing support. You basically want all of us to contract essentially the welfare state or the support state by 20 percent or so. And we're not going to do that. Screw that. We're going to go full steam ahead. They had a leftist president who was elected in 2015, and this was what he campaigned on. And three years on, when he did this, when they said this, the Europeans said, you're going to go down the tubes fast. And in fact, Portugal's really rocking and rolling right now. It's the only economy in Europe, apparently, that's really growing. What's going on there? Where did this austerity come from? Where did the idea come from? How did it get its foot or its roots into the European Union? Why is it being supported by so many countries? And how is Portugal's pushing back on this and proving a proof of concept, demonstrating that this is a bunch of BS? 
Well, you know, it's mostly a political question. The government in Portugal is an alliance of three parties, Socialist Party, the Communist Party, and the Green Party, and together they are running Portugal, and they made the decision that they're not going to do a trickle-down economics, which is what everyone else in Europe pretty much has done, despite elections in places like Greece and France for political parties that were committed to what the Portuguese did but never carried it through. That's the power of ideology, Tom. Basically, the idea is whatever the government does, it has to do it first and foremost by helping those at the top, the wealthiest folks, the corporations, in the presumption that the help to them will trickle down to everybody else. We did that in the United States as well, starting with the stimulus programs under Bush, carried forward under Obama, and now being pursued by Mr. Trump. Trickle-down is the orthodoxy with which the people who run the capitalist system try to fix its breakdowns, like the one in 2008. But there was always the alternative, which I like to call trickle-up. In other words, what the government does, instead of helping corporations by bailing them out and giving them the big contracts and giving them the big tax cuts, you don't do that. You help the people at the bottom. You give them all kinds of supports, all kinds of government handouts, etc., on the presumption that by doing that, they will all be able then to go out and spend money and that will stimulate the corporations. In other words, you help those at the bottom and it trickles up into the coffers of, of business and eventually the rich people who own and control the businesses. Trickle up has always been an alternative to trickle down. When Franklin Roosevelt became president back in the 30s in the depths of our depression, he was actually committed to trickle down, as were the people running both political parties. It was the pressure from below of a unionized CIO and all of that back in the 1930s that basically turned him from a trickle-downer into a trickle-upper. And so he began to shift, and that had a lot to do with the ultimate success of the New Deal. And basically what the Portuguese have done is replicate the New Deal and say, we're going in that route, and from just between you and me, the beauty of what they've done is, look, both trickle up and trickle down may fail. Capitalism is a system that isn't easy to fix. But at least you know if you go the trickle up route that you've helped the majority of people, whether or not it's a solution that lasts. Whereas if you use trickle down, you've helped the people who need it least and who are a small minority. And if on top of that you get a failure, well, then you really have very little to show for how you handled one of capitalism's terrible downturns. So why the resistance to trickle up among the rest of the European nations? Well, because in a sense, it always carries a certain risk. If capitalism, which really everybody recognizes, is run by a relatively small group of people who sit at the top of the society and dispense with all of the wealth, etc., if that system breaks down and the only thing you can really do is to help the mass of people from the bottom, you're going to sooner or later stimulate the question on the part of the people at the bottom, the majority, 
why in the world do we ever allow the system to be run by that minority that got us into the mess if getting us the help we've always wanted is what gets us out of the mess, maybe if we ran the show and if the wealth were much more equally distributed, we wouldn't get into the mess needing us to find mechanisms out. It basically shifts the power distribution, if you like. It shifts the ideological ground of the society to see the problem being produced by the capitalists at the top and the solution being a direct helping of people at the bottom. That's why it was so important in the 30, 40 years after the end of World War II to basically roll back the New Deal, to show hardly in any way possible that helping people at the bottom is the solution. That had to be transformed into being the problem that we now discuss it at. It's kind of a perfect analogy to what you were doing before in showing how faith-based approaches to government policy are such a complete reversal of what Jefferson, Franklin, and others had said. Yeah, remarkable stuff. Professor Richard Wolf. the other big question I had for you is, how do we measure the benefit of an economy? The metric that is used by the popular press, by and large, is the stock market. Secondarily is the unemployment rate. But it seems that, I mean, we've got a great unemployment rate right now. It's very low, and we've got a really high stock market. But it sure looks to me like the majority of Americans, of working Americans, are in trouble. I mean, 40% of Americans can't sustain a $500 medical expense. They can't deal with it. A $1,000 expense will throw them into bankruptcy. How do we come up with a new way of saying, okay, here's our economic indicator today. This is what it's saying. Well, I think here, usually I'm a critic of the economics profession of which I'm a part, but here, to be fair to the economics tradition, a proper school student learns that using one or two indices of how well an economy is doing is silly and absurd and not only unscientific, it is plain stupid. Uh, an economy is a very complicated thing. You don't capture its condition by looking at any one number and certainly not the stock market level or the unemployment rate. Let me give you just a couple of examples. 10% of Americans own 85% of all the shares. So if the shares, the value of shares on the stock market, what we get by the Dow Industrial Index or, or the Russell 2000 or any of the others, is an index of how well those 10% are doing who have any kind of stock. And by the way, most of those people don't have enough to make a big difference. So the real beneficiaries of the level of the stock market is a tiny minority of American people. And there's no correlation between the stock market being up and the well-being of the society as a whole. And the same thing applies to unemployment, although it's better than the stock market because at least it's something that's broad based. But, you know, most Americans are upset, as your comment indicates, not so much by having or not having a job, since the majority of Americans do have a job and have had it throughout this time. But the real question is, what kind of a job? What does it pay? What are the benefits that go with it? What kind of development of the human personality does it make possible? What kinds of opportunities for advancement? What is happening to the young people coming in? And by all of those metrics that I just listed, we are in fact 
in the kind of trouble that the interesting number you mentioned, the four or five hundred dollars that most Americans today cannot put their hands on to deal with an emergency, those are the indicators that give you a much richer sense. It's usually the president, to be honest, and not just Trump, but the others too. It's usually the president who gives enormous emphasis in his or her remarks every day on the in- indexes that make them look good. So yes, the stock market and the unemployment rate make them look good, and they don't mention all of the others that make the insight much richer and much more accurate. Yeah. What things would you put into the basket of measurements? You, you mentioned well, the... Well, here, here are some of those that the economics profession routinely teaches. Here's the big one. The distribution of income and wealth, much better index of how people feel is how they understand their own position in the distribution of wealth, how they compare to the Joneses down the street or to their cousins across the country. How are they faring in terms of the American dream? Is it affordable to them or not? Are they spending, for example, more than 20% of their income on rental, on housing? There's a situation that gives you a lot of insight into the lives that people lead. The level of debt of the country, both its corporate debt, its government debt, and its individual debt would be a very strong sign. To get more specific, the percentage of young people aged, say, 25, who are still living with their parents is a very famous uh, kind of example. There's a whole rich list that have been developed by economists and sociologists and others trying to get a handle on how you would measure something. Retreating to unemployment and the stock market, that's simply a ploy of those in power who want to have the situation look good to claim some basis for what they're saying all the time, but it's not a serious effort to understand what's going on. I remember the king of Bhutan coming up with his national happiness index, and it got publicized all over the place. I think whoever comes up with a formula taking those variables and says, okay, here's the Wolf formula, will be recognized for it. Dr. Richard Wolf, thank you so much for being with us. All right, Tom, glad to do it. Talk to you soon. Yep, thank you. Roderick in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Roderick, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I know this is a um, hypothetical question, but assuming that the Democrat, which I think they will, take back at least the House this midterm election and take back the White House in 2020, um, what direction do you think the Republican Party is going to go? Is it going to be more of a libertarian route, which I'm assuming it will be, or are they going to just continue doing what they've been doing since Reagan at least? Well, you know, I mean, Reagan's direction was a libertarian direction, and and the the billionaires who basically own most of the Republican Party have been pushing it that way for years, you know, for decades, and they're now getting what they want. I mean, the Koch brothers now, you know, pretty much have their control of the Republican Party. They speak the Republican Party answers. Uh, the question is whether Trumpism will survive. Because Trumpism is not libertarianism. Uh, you know, libertarians don't believe in tariffs. In fact, libertarians don't even believe in borders. You know, they, they think that uh, people should be able to move freely across borders in search of economic opportunity. The European Union is a very libertarian idea in that regard, you know, that piece of it. So what pieces of all this are going to survive if Trump goes down personally? 
you know, will that discredit Trumpism? What's going to happen to the vast majority of Americans who actually like tariffs? You know, is the Democratic Party going to pick that baton back up? Because the, the Democrat, I mean, the progressives already have, but the Democratic Party historically has been the party of tariffs, and the Republicans the party of so-called free trade or managed trade to the benefit of corporations, shall we say. So there's that issue. There's the whole immigration issue. And I think both parties, well, you know, it's, it's hard to say. The, the nativist wing the, the basically, you know, white racist wing of the Republican Party, which is in ascendance right now, although they represent probably a small portion of the actual electorate, uh, but they're Trump's base. Uh, they're not going to go away anytime soon. And, and you know, so there's a, a good question as to how the Republicans are going to demagogue that. And, um, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting, Roderick. Uh, you know, the Republican Party, when Nixon went down in flames, the Republican Party went through some serious changes and came out the back side of that with a plan. And that plan was Jude Wininsky's uh, 1976 Wall Street Journal article suggesting that the Republican Party needed to become the party of the tax cut Santa Claus. And they needed to radically cut taxes and then use that uh, as an excuse to force the Democrats to shoot their Santa Claus, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And Ronald Reagan put that into practice explicitly. You know, and that has been the, the reinvented Republican Party ever since then. The Koch brothers are fine with that because they think that uh, social service programs are, are socialism. And they want to see all the welfare programs gone, food stamps gone, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all of that should be privatized in their opinion. And in fact, that's what David Koch ran for vice president on in 1980. His platform's over on Bernie's website. So it's going to depend on, uh, in my opinion, how, how Trump... Uh, you know, if Trump goes down like Nixon went down, what does that mean for the party? And I, I honestly don't know the answer to the question, but I think those are the major variables. What do you think, Roderick? Because I know if, um, which I'm, I'm really assuming, I'm cheering them on. I know Bernie um, takes the White House in 2020. I know. I've, I've heard it on your program. They're going to they're throw everything in the kitchen sink at them. Oh, sure. I'm already prepared for well, that. Well, not just Bernie. And, I mean, if, if it's Elizabeth Warren, if it's Kamala Harris, basically all the Democratic candidates, with the exception, I think, of, of, of Joe Biden, have uh, embraced, you know, at least two-thirds of the Democratic Socialist agenda. And so, you know, you're going to have a progressive president in 2020 if the Democrats elect pretty much anybody who's on their list. Yes. So, and I, you know, I think that I, I welcome that. I mean, this, and thanks for the call, Roderick. And in fact, you know, apropos of welcoming that, Fox and Friends designed a poll. This is hysterical. Uh, Fox and Friends designed a poll asking, uh, the, the, here's the question. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill is estimated to cost $32.6 trillion, new study says. Would the benefit outweigh the costs? Now, they don't point out in that question. It's a very deceptive question, but, of course, it's from Fox News, so you expect that. But they don't point out that that $32.6 trillion is several trillion dollars less than we're currently spending on health insurance, right, on, health, on the access to health care. So it starts out as a lie, but people are figuring this out. 13,000 people voted. And the vast majority of them said that they would like, they would like Medicare for all. So, you know, even Fox and Friends is struggling with this stuff right now. I mentioned in the last hour Harry Truman as the guy who was the first Democrat to actually propose legislation that was what today we would call Medicare for all. Back then it was referred to as a single-payer health care system, a nationwide single-payer health care system that would cover everybody. 
And Harry Truman proposed that because he believed it would be good for business. Harry Truman was a businessman. He was a haberdasher from Missouri. You know, he owned a hat shop. You know, in fact, the Democrats, they got him in there because they were worried that uh, FDR was going too far to the left and all this kind of stuff. And there was this backlash happening. And, and Truman turned out to be pretty progressive himself, which was really cool. I'm going to read the entire quote, and then I want to talk about how this ties into what's going on with regard to health care in the United States right now and where we're going in this country with regard to single-payer health care and things like that. Uh, Harry Truman said, Republicans approve of the American farmer, but they're willing to help him go broke. They stand four square for the American home, but not for housing. They are strong for labor, but they are stronger for restricting labor's rights. They favor the minimum wage. The smaller the minimum wage, the better. They endorse educational opportunity for all, but they won't spend money for teachers or for schools. They think modern medical care and hospitals are fine for people who can afford them. They consider electrical power a great blessing, but only when the private power companies get their rake off. They think American standard of living is a fine thing, so long as it doesn't spread to all the people. And they admire the government of the United States so much that they would like to buy it. And that's, you know, Harry Truman, and it's just, it's just so true today. And, and, and what's mind-boggling is, I mean, you know, he said that in the 1940s, and here, you know, saying that Republicans don't like schools, they don't like funding schools, they don't like, you know, health care, medical care, uh, they, they want to be sure that power is private. I mean, he just nailed it. And they're still doing the same things and still singing the same songs. And folks in typically in rural areas in small town America, places that are largely or entirely white, get them all cranked up about illegal immigration and brown people are flooding the country and oh my God, it's MS-13 and, and those gay people are going to come after you and, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, they figure out, they otherize as many of us as possible and so that they, they essentially view themselves now as the other. You know, the, the gun-toting, NASCAR-loving, Fox News-watching, you know, white family. This is, this is it. And this is, you know, what the Republican base is down to. But these are the very people who are being harmed by Donald Trump's policies. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, he's eviscerating. He's chopping it up, tearing it apart. And it has helped us, and mostly low-income people, recover over $15 billion that was stolen from them by banks. Of course, the banksters are big funders of the Republican Party, which is why Mick Mulvaney and now this new person is coming into to the CFPB, uh, you know, are doing this stuff. But, you know, the story, I think, that is worth reminding you of is a story that I did on this program back in 2014. And it lasted for a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, had we been Republicans, everybody would still remember Charlene Dill's name. But because the Democrats tend to go from issue to issue to issue rather than grabbing a couple of really big things and just pounding on them forever like the Republicans do, like, you know, Benghazi or whatever, um, Charlene Dill has been forgotten. And I think that that's a great tragedy. Charlene Dill was a 32-year-old mother with three kids, ages three, seven, and nine. A boy and two girls. And... In fact, her, her son looks so much like my son that it just, uh, I saw the picture of them yesterday and I had to call Louise over and say, hey, take a look at this. She made her living. She lived in a trailer near Kissimmee, Florida, near Orlando, Florida. She made her living uh, cleaning people's houses and babysitting. And she finally got a, a, another, a third job 
uh, selling vacuum cleaners for the Rainbow Vacuum Cleaner Company. And she had a heart condition. And she had two medications to take to the heart for the heart condition that she couldn't afford. So in, you know, when President Obama passed Obamacare, Charlene presumably was excited. Hey, I can get my medications paid for. And then the Supreme Court took up the case, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, NFIB v. Sibelius versus the Secretary of HEW. And the Supreme Court took up the case and said, you know, if Florida doesn't want to expand Medicaid to all of its, to all of its people, no big deal. Now, Charlene was making between nine dollars and $11,000 a year. In Florida, if you make, over, if you make under $12,000 a year, you're not eligible for Obamacare. And if you make over $4,000 a year, you're not eligible for Medicaid, the health insurance for the truly poor. So Charlene fell right in the middle of that slot. She's made more than $4,000 and less than $12,000 a year. And as a consequence, she was not eligible for Medicaid expansion because Rick Scott, the Republican governor of, of Florida, said, we are not going to take that $51 billion that the federal government is offering us, which will stimulate our state and save our, our citizens. We're not going to take it because, you know, the Koch brothers don't want us to, and we really love all the money they give us and all the support they give us, um, you know, fundamentally. And, I mean, nobody actually came out and said that, but it sure, it sure looks like that's what's going on. This is, you know, you've got Republican governors all across the United States, with two or three exceptions, who have taken steps to actually harm their own citizens in order to suck up to libertarian billionaires. So Charlene Dill is cutting her pills in half or whatever she was doing. She was not taking her medications the way that she was supposed to. And she had worked a long and exhausting day, which is not good for people who have heart conditions. And she had been, she had been babysitting in the morning. She had been cleaning houses all afternoon. And then she, she had two leads for people who might want to buy vacuum cleaners out in Kissimmee. Nice upper middle class families who, you know. And so she, she drove her car out to one of them and was making a sales pitch in their living room as she dropped dead. Three children now, orphans. Essentially, she was in the process of divorcing her husband at the time. Except that she couldn't afford the divorce, so she was in, you know, she had moved, but she had moved out and all this kind of stuff. Charlene Dill, dead because of Rick Scott. Dead because of the Supreme Court. Dead because of the, the, the challenge that was launched to the Supreme Court by the National Federation of Independent Businesses, which claims to be an organization that represents small business. But if you go over to SourceWatch, they take a lot of money from the Koch brothers' groups and people affiliated with the Koch brothers. So once again, you've got you know, eccentric libertarian billionaires' fingerprints all over this thing, and it's happening all over the country. This is just a screaming tragedy. And then on top of that, you look at this, you know, Fox and Friends yesterday said, you know, it's going to cost $32 trillion to do Bernie care, Medicare for all, do you think it's worth it? Without pointing out, by the way, that if you don't do burning care, it's going to cost you 34, 35, maybe 40 million uh, trillion dollars. But the majority of Fox and Friends viewers, apparently, I mean, they're, they're, it's an online poll, so they're probably going to be claiming, oh, yeah, that was, you know, those were, those were uh, trolls who voted all over and over again in our poll. But I think they're pretty good at keeping that from happening. But the majority of people 
voted in the poll to say, yeah, we want, we want Bernie care. We want single-payer health care. Pretty straightforward stuff. Meanwhile, in uh, another story in the news, uh, the cities of, uh, ap- apropos of this, the cities of Baltimore, Cincinnati, Chicago, and Columbus, Ohio, today filed a new lawsuit against Trump saying that his, his uh, cutting away at the Affordable Care Act, specifically by expanding these placebo policies, it, right now you can only sell them for 90 days, and they don't cover pre-existing conditions, and they don't cover maternity, they don't cover pregnancy, things like that. So they're pretty useless health insurance. You get, you get sick, you lose your insurance, basically, or at least according to the American Cancer Society. That he's expanding from 90 days, the t- period of time that health insurance companies can sell these cheapo policies, to three years, which is going to siphon young, healthy people away from Medicare and, and leave Medicare you know, with, the, with the vulnerable and the sick. What they're alleging is that the president has, quote, waged a relentless effort to use executive action alone to undermine and ultimately eliminate the Affordable Care Act. And it sure looks like that's true. And this is a uh, this is a this is a real tragedy for America and for all Americans. This is the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. Stick around. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Hi, Dr. Tom. Um, And all of the talking that everybody does of getting us expanded Medicare for all, this is something I go around trying to teach when I'm out, you know, and about. Has anyone tried to explain to the corporations what it would mean to them if all of their employees are on expanded Medicare for all and how much it would save them in instead of trying to help people get uh, insurance. 
has anybody tried to teach the CEOs of, say, like GM or uh, Ford or Chrysler what it would mean to their businesses if all of their employees are on Medicaid for all? It was, and, it was big business that was supporting Harry Truman when he wanted to do single-payer. Yeah, so I think so, I think that this is not a secret in in the uh, corporate boardrooms. They know how much they spend on healthcare. Uh, although you've got a bunch of companies, you know, with the WalMarts of the world, who don't offer good health insurance, and when they do, you have to pay for part of it, and all this other kind of stuff. Um, and 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 the and the larger you know companies that offer no health insurance at all. And I I don't want to name names because I'm not sure exactly who that is, but there's a lot of companies, particularly you know big retail companies. Uh, food yeah. services companies, they're not offering any health insurance. What they're looking yeah. at is if everybody gets health insurance through Medicare for All, their taxes are going to go up. It's going to be paid for in part by a raise in corporate taxes. And so they're opposed yeah, to it. This is also an expense. Every company that, that pays a payroll and matches the Medicare contribution, matches the Social Security contribution, these are the only two programs that we, the people, have. None of these corporations even offer a pension to people. And so if you can get these idiots, in my view, to wake yeah. up to the fact that if they would give everybody expanded Medicare for all, cover everything, and increase Social Security so that people, when they retire, they know they're going to be safe, yeah. this would create a stable economy. Yes. What people pay here for Blue Cross Blue Shield, our biggest, is a house payment or even a car payment. And we have ads every day, come buy a car. Right. But these people cannot buy a car when they do not know what their health insurance is going to be. Right. And the other, the other advantage to business, and this would even be to the business that doesn't offer health insurance, is the public health advantage. When the broad base of the population has access to health care, diseases are less likely to travel because people get treatment. Um, people are, you, you're, you'll see less turnover in your, in your employees. You'll see a healthier workforce. Those are all good things. Those are all social benefits that we all need to be promoting. Norma, thank you for the call. And, and you know, as, as usual, you knock it out of the park. Eddie in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Eddie, what's up? Uh, so I've got a question for you. It is your stance that companies should have a moral compass, that they have a social obligation. Is that correct? Uh, no. No, my, my stance is that the law should require companies to behave in ways that comport with the public uh, good, the general welfare. I don't think that uh, you're ever going to get a social conscience out of a company. A company is by definition a sociopath. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not human beings. It's a, it's a legal fiction. Right. Uh, but it should be, well, a company should be ran with a social obligation or moral compass? Is no, it should be run in a way that, that, that doesn't harm society and ideally that actually helps society. The way that we used to do this, for example, Eddie, is we used to uh, forbid executives of companies from compensating themselves with their own stock. So they didn't have a, an incentive. And we started doing this, by the way, in the 1930s. And uh, because of the way that companies have been behaving in the 1920s that led right to the stock market crash, which is that they were pumping up their own stock by buying back their own shares. And as the stock continued to go up, they'd buy more shares back, and then they would sell those out into the marketplace and make a fortune. But that led directly to the bubble of October 1929. And so we said, you can't do that anymore. Uh, that, that law was undone uh, in the 80s by the Reagan administration, and we've seen the stock market go now to just breathtaking heights. Judy in Lombard, Illinois. Hey, Judy, what's up? Hi, Tom. I was just wondering, the other day at the end of my driveway was a newspaper, 
and it was called the Epoch Daily. It's hmm. E P O C H, right. and it was the it was a conservative newspaper. Never in my life did I see it before. It praised Trump. And um, the guy who uh, it's put out by some fellow who's a Chinese businessman. <laughs> but, I mean, I wondered if anyone else had ever gotten one. Oh, I'm sure of it. It was a free newspaper? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, they have, I think. They have yeah, those in Washington, D.C. They pay people to pass them out at the subways, these right-wing oh, newspapers. Really? Yeah, they, they literally, you, everywhere you go, there's two of them. There's two competing uh, right-wing newspapers in Washington, D.C. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I just They're funded by right-wing know. billionaires. Right. I want you to know that I watch your show all the time, and I have a little thing here. You'll know who it is. When the speech condemns free press, you are the, hearing the words of a tyrant, and that's what people need to listen to. Who's, who's the quote from? Thomas Jefferson. Wow. Wow. Thank yeah. you very much for that, Judy. Well, thank you, Tom. Yep, Bye. I appreciate it. Uh, the words of a tyrant. I'm going to have to look that quote up. Uh, Louise, help me remember. That's a good one. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. What a fascinating day. We'll be back tomorrow, you know, continuing with the news of the day and uh, keeping a, a rather jaundiced eye on what the administration is up to. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.